I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell him uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Welcome. I'm Ben Boyce. This is The Dr. Junkie Show. And today's episode is about, well, it's about a lot. It's been a few months since the last episode, and I've been doing a lot of reading. Mostly 20th century media scholars who were trying to explain the changes they saw going on around them and the awful behavior those changes sometimes seem to cause. And I got to thinking that this has a lot to do with why the United States has such a huge drug overdose and addiction problem. So I thought I'd take a stab at walking through some of my thoughts here, which hopefully have had enough time to settle into coherent connections. Heroin, you'll remember, is just an opioid. And like anything that binds to the mu opioid receptor sites in our bodies, it causes a basic slowing down of certain neurons firing. Heroin and other opioids only work because our body has a natural opioid system. When we take opioids, or any drug, we are, as Dr. Judith Grizzle has said, simply slowing down or speeding up already occurring processes in the body. That's all drugs are. You could think of them as taking the edge off using biological means rather than physical means, like a massage or a movie. So what's that got to do with Karl Marx or Max Horkheimer or Theo Adorno? More than you might think. First, Nietzsche, whose name is so hard to spell that I don't think I've ever managed to avoid one of those red squiggles of death when writing it, Nietzsche's big claim to fame was the branding of the idea that God is dead, that he remains dead, and that we killed him. Sounds harsh, right? But what he was saying at the end of the 1800s when he was writing this is that we'd spent the years since the Enlightenment slowly eroding the religious principles that once undergirded our cultural norms. Everything from laws to government had long been created and supported by appealing to the authority of God and Almighty. But that same authority had told us once that Earth was the center of the universe, that humans were created by God in recent history, often less than 6,000 years ago, and that the king's authority came from on high, not from the consent of the governed. Slowly but surely, our beliefs about these things, and many more, had changed, and for good reason. But we hadn't yet updated the society that these beliefs built, despite having knocked out most of its moral supports, the reasons we had all better behave in this system. He saw this as dangerous because it meant that eventually people would start to realize they'd been tricked into believing a lie with no teeth behind the threats, since, as he said, God is dead and he couldn't punish anybody. He thought these folks that lost their faith along the way might abandon their morals altogether. They might instead begin to place their faith, once reserved for the Almighty, in politicians, or in preachers, or in movie stars and podcasters. Sound familiar? So fast forward through a couple world wars and a holocaust, and you can understand why, 50 years after Nietzsche was writing, his followers were even more alarmed than he was. 
How had this happened in the most productive, advanced, moral civilization that ever existed? We were supposed to be enlightened. Karl Marx had assumed that capitalism was the problem, and he predicted that eventually the pressure it put on workers who make the least and work the most would cause those workers to join forces with each other and rise up against their employers, seizing the means of production, the factories, the corporations, the hospitals, the manufacturing facilities. These uprisings would replace large corporate profits with employee-owned systems designed to benefit the workers. The result, Marx said, would be a reintroduction of personalized work and a long-overdue reduction in our cultural pressures towards isolation and alienation of each worker into their own station in the factory, their own car in the parking lot, their own schedule, their own home their own TVs, with their own preferences for where they get their news, their food, their entertainment. The system itself, said Marx, is designed to look at humans as cogs in a machine, as means to an end, money, rather than ends in themselves. To value the ability of investors to make money over the value of collective human life. In cultures like ours, we become isolated not only because of the system's factory-like design, but also because it's a pretty fucking miserable system. Seriously. We all grow up programmed to find something that we can do for half of our waking lives, eight hours a day in most places nowadays, just so we can make enough money to afford our own isolation, our own homes, TVs, cell phones, cars, movie tickets, vacations, funny t-shirts, Gag gifts for Christmas. The things we buy with the dirty paper we get for selling half of our waking lives to an investor who's just using us as a means to an end. Money. But let's not forget that capitalism has what appears to be a silver coating. I love light beer, cheap weed, and greasy french fries. And I appreciate the paved roads, clear sidewalks, and steady deliveries that make that possible. It's really easy in a world like that to forget how many people are working half of their lives to grow, process, cook, and deliver those french fries, that cheap weed, that light beer. And they're all doing it so they can enjoy the fruits of capitalism, those french fries, that light beer. My point is, it can be really hard to even imagine a different way from inside a system like this. I mean, how could we? Should we start by telling In-N-Out that they can't charge people for cheeseburgers anymore? Or maybe we just stop paying the In-N-Out workers? Or maybe we can tell the farmers that they'll get paid next week with a portion of whatever bartered goods people bring in this week to trade for burgers. Uh, Mr. Farmer, just keep track of how many potatoes you gave us, and at the end of next month, we'll send you a portion of all the knickknacks, buttons, pretty rocks, and garden turnips that people brought in to trade for those potatoes after we cooked them. It all sounds really awful compared to what appears to be a well-oiled system called capitalism. Enter the Frankfurt School, which includes a bunch of famous communication theorists, among them Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. They wanted to know why it was that in a world of cheap cars, water parks, and drive-ins, humans seemed to be more alienated than ever before. And they picked up where Karl Marx left off, although they first had to account for his failed predictions regarding the overthrow of capitalism with communism. It hadn't happened, 
Despite the fact that Germany seemed poised to be the first domino that fell following World War I, which had left the country and its citizens rather broke. Horkheimer and Adorno claimed that Marx had oversimplified his predictions by assuming capitalism wouldn't fight back, so to speak. If those with the most to lose from an overhaul of the current system, the rich, if they decided to tip the scales in their favor, what could they do? Well, they could put us all under armed guard, threaten to kill us if we don't conform, make us chant slogans and pledges to the American flag under threat of imprisonment, but none of that would work as well as if they could just get a hold of our hearts. If somehow a group of people could be tricked into embracing their own chains, then maybe capitalism could preserve its hold by recruiting those who might otherwise fight to change it. The means for accomplishing that heart grab? All the gizmos, gadgets, fast cars, glitzy vacations, cheap weed, greasy french fries, and go-go dancers you can afford with the green paper you earn by selling half of your waking life to a job that you can't stand. That is, whatever green paper you have left after you pay for your alienation machines. The house, the car, the internet, your streaming services. Now I really want to drive this point home before I move on because I think it's a big part of the connection I made to heroin and other drugs, which I promise I'm getting to. For tens of thousands of years, humans have been very close to the products that we create and consume. If you wanted potatoes, well, you'd better grow your own potatoes, or you'd better know somebody who does, and you better have something to offer them in exchange for those potatoes when potato season rolls around. For a long time, you wouldn't go to Walmart for your bread, You'd either bake your own, or you'd buy your bread from Jim, the local bread guy, who'd been making bread for 20 years. Jim, the bread guy, baked bread because he enjoyed it. And at some point in his life, he realized he was good enough to do it for a living. That's what commerce was, even after we invented money to act as all-purpose value holders during exchanges. But Jim can only make so much bread. And when capitalism really ramps up, you can expect the bar owner across the street to think to himself, I wonder if I could make bread cheaper than Jim and get some of his profits. If that bar owner has enough capital of his own, or if he can secure a line of credit on the bar, well, he could build an entire factory of mixers, ovens, and packing equipment. And he can pay people low wages to turn out far more bread per day than Jim at a far lower cost per loaf. That's just good capitalism. Competition. If Jim can't compete, says the capitalist, maybe he should just close up shop and go work at the new factory. Now let's think about that. What if he does? He would suddenly go from being hands-on from the start to the end of his bread loaves to being a single station on an assembly line for bread. He might be in charge of delivering flour from the shipping docks, or maybe he's the mixer guy he's naturally going to feel much less connected to his work and to the final product he produces. He'll feel alienated from the world around him. He'll no longer see the merchants, the customers, the final product. The best Jim can hope for is to take some of his money, earned by selling half his life to the bread factory which alienates him, and buying a loaf of the final product, which will feel very different than holding one of his own baked loaves. Poor Jim. He no longer feels like, hey, I'm Jim, and I proudly make bread that feeds my neighbors and friends. Now he feels like, I'm Jim, and I work at the Wonder Bread, where I drive a fork truck, and I don't really know anyone. Alienation is built into capitalism. 
Now, what can we expect Jim, or anyone else for that matter, to do after a day of work in the bread plant, pushing a button or wrapping loaves of bread as they come by for eight hours? Well, we can imagine he's probably fried, ready to relax and take the edge off. So maybe he'd go home and watch some TV or play a video game. He might go to the movies or to dinner. Or maybe he'd attend the local fair that's in town, entertainment. But he probably isn't going to go home after an eight-hour shift and read philosophy or take a college class or learn biology or listen to a lecture on Plato's cave or pick up a new language. No, he's going to want to chill. And he's going to want to chill in isolation or in his own small group of friends and family members alienated from the larger world and content to consume those products that he can afford and which make him feel a little bit better about life. He'll recharge, mostly, so he can go back to work the next day. Our leisure time, said Adorno and Horkheimer, is oriented largely towards keeping us equipped to fulfill our roles during our work time. We're selling half our lives to afford just enough Barbie movies, football games, and cliche vacations to prevent us from quitting our jobs on the spot. That's the result of capitalism, what they called a culture industry, whereby the things that we think of as culture, films that gross a billion bucks, art that becomes a meme, sports that are broadcast across the globe, fashion, music, news, They all become cheesy, cheap, empty-calorie snack foods. We aren't interested in the difficult work of consuming documentary or philosophy because, remember, we're all burned out from selling half of our waking lives. Now back to our friend Nietzsche for a second, who argued that the replacement of God with Hollywood actors or podcasters will then bleed into the purchasing of capitalistic products so we can be like those actors or podcasters. I have to have that hat that Tom Cruise wore in Top Gun, or that pair of gloves that OJ advertised in that commercial. Theodore Adorno says that in an age of spiritual disenfranchisement, the individual experiences the need for substitute images of the divine. It obtains these through pseudo-culture. Hollywood idols, soaps, novels, pop tunes, lyrics, and film, genres such as the Wild West or the Mafia movie, fashion, It substitutes mythology for the masses. Nietzsche's claim that our replacement of God with other idols would result in a moral decay seems obvious the second the credit card bill shows up. It gets worse, because the commercials that come along with Top Gun when it eventually airs on TV, well, they promise all sorts of cures to all sorts of other bad feelings we have. And so we buy them, too. Advertisers know we feel alienated, So they show us ads for pharma products with images of happy families and parties with friends, as if treating your herpes can somehow solve your lifelong anxiety with social groups or your family's internal conflicts. But no worries, there are pills or products for everything. So if this one doesn't work, just keep an eye out for the next commercial. It's no surprise that we wind up feeling like no matter what we do, two things happen. One, we're eternally unsatisfied on our quest to be just happy enough to go back to our miserable capitalist lives despite spending our leisure time seeking out whatever products promise to fix that bad feeling. And number two, we feel more and more pressure to work, to get a bonus or a raise, to be able to keep buying the fixes until, hopefully, maybe we do find one that works. We wind up wanting novelty, newness, something that feels different, 
So we seek out those custom-made t-shirts or the latest Amazon product only to realize it too fails to deliver what it promises. Now in the process, those products offered by the culture industry inevitably become the same because we define ourselves off them, then manufacturers use big data to push us slightly different versions of the same damn skirt or t-shirt they already sold us or to sell us some other magic wonder cure that's both brand new and exactly the same as all the others. Our films, TV shows, and books, Horkheimer and Adorno say, have become hardly disguised copies of other movies, TV shows, and books. The same heroes, the same plot lines, the same characters, the same titles even. It's bizarre unless you understand our culture industry's demand for the easiest-to-consume, lowest-thought product to soothe our nonstop angst. And one more time, it actually gets worse than that. Because don't forget, life imitates art. So the culture industry dumbing itself down to soothe our need to recharge after work, then replicating those dumbed-down stories that sell the most, it all results in the population of the United States dumbing itself down. Because it's not Sam Harris or Noam Chomsky that we're borrowing lines from to define our own identities. It's pop stars, sitcom stars, celebrities, all the people who are the very result of a demand for ever dumber, ever funner reproductions of reproductions. Life imitates art, as Oscar Wilde said. A dumbed-down culture industry leads to a dumbed-down culture. Now, if you're thinking, then, come on, I realize it kind of sucks sometimes, but everyone's got to work. And anyway, have you been to Walmart or on Amazon lately? I mean, sure, there are cheap, cheesy products and memes circulating. And sure, you can find lots of people walking around repeating their favorite lines from their favorite shallow films. But some of us are into smart, philosophical stuff. We can buy an Einstein t-shirt just as easily as an Ace Ventura t-shirt, right? I mean, nowadays, you can even pay someone to put almost anything on a t-shirt. You can have it delivered to your door the next day. The culture industry might be shallow in some spots, but aren't others at least sort of deep? Adorno and Horkheimer would say that that attitude is the product of this system, which has to maintain the appearance of choice if it wishes to continue medicating the suffering of the life-selling workers, the people selling half of our waking lives. I mean, if we felt like we were all being forced to conform to the same roles, the same t-shirts, the same reproductions, well, then we would probably rise up and change some things. But Marx was wrong in that even then we wouldn't fully overthrow capitalism. In fact, we wouldn't know how. And here's the connection to heroin. Marshall McLuhan taught us that the medium is the message. The specific show you watch on TV, or the specific podcast you subscribe to, well, they don't impact the world anywhere near as much as the existence of the medium of TV or podcasting. We jog, drive, and work while listening to podcasts, but we still gain information in a certain way. Some of us teachers assign them for classes, which changes the way that students learn and their expectations about the future. Freeways are maybe a better example. They're a medium that created an even more obvious change in the world, in the way we think about things like vacations, visits to family who live far away, work and school. Airplanes again caused a similar reshaping of the world that was much larger than any one flight ever delivered. The medium is the message. 
In capitalism, we're used to a certain kind of leisure product, that feel-good, don't-make-me-think-too-much, take-the-edge-off-already product that can help us feel good enough today to go suffer through another damn day of work tomorrow. If we all discovered that we didn't have to go to work tomorrow, most of us wouldn't know what to do with all of our leisure time except to consume more of the things that make it possible for us to go to work, the cultural junk food that doesn't require much thought. And if everyone started watching 15 hours per day of rerun Netflix tomorrow, well, I don't think the world would be a much better place. So we would have to entirely rethink these ideas of leisure time, work time, the very concept of work, and perhaps the next few decades of AI development will force something very much like this rethinking to happen at a high rate. But like Herbert Marcuse said, another early Frankfurt School researcher, Capitalism will only change slowly, if at all, in gradual moves that eventually bring us closer to a world where, perhaps, we shake some of those shackles that cost so many so much in the way of happiness, but we just aren't ready yet. Okay, okay, heroin. When we sit down after work to sigh, to loosen our belts, to scratch our bellies and watch reruns of Cops until we pass out from drinking light beer... We're essentially rewarding ourselves without doing much work, because remember, we don't have the energy to do any of that work. I can read some Play-Doh and have an epiphany and feel good, or I can kick back a few bush lights and watch the police pull over some kids for smoking weed in the suburbs. Choice B seems much easier and much more enjoyable, but it never really fulfills its promise. Remember, nothing does in capitalist society, despite everything promising something. It feels better than nothing, sure, but it always leaves us wanting more of that feeling. Heroin is that feeling, unadulterated, straight to the head. It's no wonder that the United States has such a big drug problem. We have a mindset seeped in the wiles of capitalism. And we have a bigger culture industry to leave us feeling more disappointed and alienated than ever before. Heroin is the chemical hug of a culture we're disconnected from. The biological hack of reconnection and fulfillment. To fix our cultural drug problem, we'd first have to fix our cultural morals. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.